You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Good morning, Thrive. It's great having you here on this day, our last day in the sermon series called Shift, where our goal has been to make a real shift in our attitudes, our actions, and our lives for the sake of the gospel. Um, First of all, I want to say Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. I hope you have a blessed day and uh, that all of you today are enjoying it. So, I don't know where you're at today, but I'll tell you something I want to uh, share with you. We're going to be doing uh, a talk right now about the shift from the one to the many. What I mean by that is from one person doing ministry to the many of us doing ministry together. Um, I don't know if you realize this about me, but when I was young, I never intended to be a pastor. In fact, when I went to college, I did not go into a Christian college to become a pastor. I didn't want anything to do with being a pastor. My intent was to be a high school teacher for biology and art. Um, But that shifted at my time in the college. Now, one of the reasons why I didn't want to be a pastor, well, there are two reasons. Number one, the pastors that I grew up with were really nice, but they were a little stuffy, reserved, and everyone kind of put them on a pedestal. I did not like that idea myself. And secondly, probably more importantly, is that um, a lot of people that I grew up with that went to church, talked about ministry, talked about the church, and always, if the pastor did something, well, that's the pastor's job. You know, it was kind of the excuse of why I personally am not a Christian witness, why I don't do ministry. No, no, that's for the professionals, for the pastors to do. And church turned into where the pastor did the ministry and the members received the ministry and everybody seemed happy but me. I was not happy with that arrangement. It didn't make any sense to me. And in fact, if you look at Uh, the New Testament, you won't find that that is the model of ministry at all. It's not about one person doing ministry, but it's about the many doing ministry together and everyone being a minister. In the Old Testament, there may have been a priesthood set aside and a high priest that did certain rites and activities that no one else did, and he did it on behalf of the many. But in the New Testament, the idea of priesthood shifted, and Peter says in First Peter, his first letter, that you all together are a royal priesthood. Everyone is a priest, not just one, not just a few, not just a select few. Everyone is a priest. Everyone is a ministered. Everyone is called. Everyone is that priesthood together. So that's the shift we are looking at. And the shift we are looking at is going to be focused, uh, we're going to focus on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16 where Paul writes, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, 
from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, making the body grow as it builds itself up in love. So today for our last in the series of shift, we're going to look at the shift from the one to the many, and we're going to look at just two phrases as the main point right out of this text. And they are, and he gave, talking about Jesus when he ascended on high, and secondly, until we attain the whole purpose of why he gave these gifts. So first of all, and he gave. And this comes from that first verse that I read. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up of the body. So in other words, Paul would say, God so loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And God then also gives beyond the son every member of the Christian church in ministry for the sake of the world. I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this. Are you a gifted person? <laughs> Probably your first response is, oh, well, you know, um, and some kind of modest response, not really that gifted. You know, it'd be rude for somebody to say, oh, of course I'm gifted, but that is what the Bible says. And what this passage is saying, there is no one within the Christian church that is not gifted by the Holy Spirit and is not gifted for ministry. Uh, so often we think being gifted means that you are special, that you are set apart. And those things are true, but, and, and, and they are true. But somehow that we deserve our giftedness or we are valued more because of our gifts. That is not the case. The value you have as a Christian is because God so loved the world. Your value is already there, however you are gifted. Now, on top of that, I think we are often taught a false sense of humility by having this high dose of self-rejection about our giftedness. So anything that we would say that is positive about ourselves sounds prideful and so it's sinful and therefore we don't. Self-rejection, Henry Nouwen would say, is the malaise that cripples Christians from being all that God would want them to be. I want you to realize this, not only that you are gifted, but if you minimize the gifts of God that he has given you, you are actually denying God's goodness and you are belittling God's plan and God's calling in your life. That's the sin we need to worry about. So our text states that in Ephesians that when Jesus ascended on high and took the place of all power, all glory, all honor, that he then gifts people to the church and gifts you to this world. You are the gift in this text. I don't know if you notice that it's not things, but it's people. It's people that are gifts. What's fascinating in this text too, and Mike Breen, a Christian pastor makes emphasis of this, is that the gifts are people. And not only that, everyone is a gifted person in some capacity, either a combination of these five different gifts that are listed or one specifically, at least in the church. There is no one that does not have a ministry of word, the ministry of God's gospel to this world. And so he lists them off. An apostle, someone who is sent out to do new ministries, new spiritually entrepreneurial ministries in this world to make a difference. 
Maybe that's your gifting because you have a passion to see something different, to do something new for the sake of the gospel. Prophets, those who speak forth God's word completely and fully into the hearts and lives of people in an effective way and know how to apply it. And maybe that's your gift. Evangelists, those who just have a winsomeness about their witness and love for other people, just love being around them and love to share the love of Jesus with them. Shepherds, those who just care about others and want to make sure they are nurtured and cared for and, and connected in community and will not let people just drift away and they have a heart and a passion for the lost to bring them back in or people who might be confused or in need of ministry. And finally, teachers, those who want to empower and instruct and care about others. All these gifts in the church are people and you're one of them, some combination of them. You are a minister. Everyone has a ministry. No one is just a warmer of a seat in a church or a spectator or some backbencher that's just waiting someday to maybe do something for God. How do we use these gifts of ministry together? Now, Paul, Paul Bear Bryant I don't know if you know of him. He was the famous football coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide until Nick Saban. And he said this concerning his team. He said, I'm just a plow hand from Arkansas, but I have learned how to hold a team together, how to lift some men up, how to calm others down until finally they've got one heartbeat, a team. There's just three things I'd ever say. If anything goes bad, I did it. If anything goes semi-good, then we did it. If anything goes real good, then you did it. That's all it takes to get people to win football games for you. Maybe a bit simplistic, but I think Bear Bryant has a good understanding of what the team of the church is to be. And sometimes we are like a football game in church, as a metaphor, not so much like a football team. You, you've probably been to a maybe a college game or a professional game or even a high school game. You know how football works. There's 22 people on the, uh, on the field working and sweating and making plays and making a difference. Some coaches on the sideline and the rest are spectators in the stand. And often we've said that in the church, there's like 20% doing everything and 80% kind of spectating. I think though, it's much worse than that in most churches. Yeah, in most churches. Because often I think what has happened is we see the church professionals as the only ones who are actually doing the ministry. They're the ones on the field, one or two or three people. And the leadership in a church is often on the sidelines. They're the coaches. They're telling those professionals what to do and when to do it. And the rest of the church are all spectators, cheering people on when things are going good and booing when things are not going so good. No wonder we're not that effective in this world. Thank God as well. It's not how I've ever seen our church, Thrive Community Church, be. You've given me the privilege to be paid for what I'm doing, for the calling that I've been given. But it's not for the sake that I do your ministry. In fact, you can't pay me enough to do the ministry God has called you to do. 
but you've given me the ministry of being more like the coach. No one's in the stands. Everyone is out on the field. Everyone's working together. We're all players in the game, and that's how we win. Here's the reality check, though, about Christianity in America right now, though. This according to the Gallup polls that have been done. From about the 1930s to about 1999, the average average amount of Christians that were connected to churches or the average amount of citizens in the United States that were part of the Christian church was around 70-ish percent. But from 1999 to the present, that has dropped precipitously by 20 points. And in the last 10 years, it's been a rapid decline. Why? I think one reason is this. Too many spectators, not enough players, and the team is failing. Too many have lost the game because they aren't even playing on the team. Somehow, too many of God's players only think the team was meant for someone else, and we're just fans or spectators at best. Oscar Feucht, a a pastor, said this 50 years ago, and I think it's still true today. American churches, in the thinking of the average person, are often more like institutions that have to be maintained than communities of people personally at work and mission. You know, nothing thrills me more here at Thrive when I hear a member of the church say, hey, pastor, I'm thinking this is what God is calling me to do. And they start actively engaging in that in the community. You know, pastor, I'm going to be actively involved in this. Or, hey, how can I help in this way? Um, From leading a home huddle of other Christians to serving the poor, to phoning others during this time of COVID-19 pandemic, to giving sacrificially, to organizing different events, to sharing the good news of Jesus with your neighbors, doing things outside of this church, just in this community for the sake of the kingdom, regardless, that is so thrilling to see. That is so thrilling to see. And we can take this one step further. You're not simply God's gift to the church that we are in ministry together, but you are God's gift to this world. And God gave his son, Jesus Christ, for the sake of this world because he loved it so much. And God is giving you as his gift to continue his ministry in this world. Maybe the COVID-19 pandemic has been actually a blessing for the Christian church because instead of focusing on trying to gather butts in the pews on Sunday morning and make church all about a building and coming together here, we realize that really the church is in the community and the church has never closed its doors and the church is about active ministry where everyone is actively representing Jesus to this community in one form or another. That's the kind of shift that we really need to have happen. The shift is a shift that we need to better love the broken and those who are bruised in our society. So I have to shift from serve me to service to others. To better love fellow believers, I must shift from impressing everyone to impacting their lives. To better love the generations around me, I need to shift from suppressing the young to supporting the young. To better love the Lord, I must shift from watching to worshiping 
to truly worshiping, to better love the lost. I need to shift from seeking to be comfortable to offering compassion to those in discomfort. There might be one or only two paid staff here at Thrive, but we're all ministers, every one of us. That's our first point. And he gave. He gave you, he gave me, he gave us all, gifted to this world for the sake of his kingdom. And the second point comes up just a couple verses later, until we attain. So to what goal? What's the purpose of him giving these gifts to the church, the people of the church to one another? Ephesians chapter 4, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the whole purpose is for us to maintain or attain the full stature of Jesus Christ together. Together. Christian maturity. It's not something one person can do on their own. You cannot become mature outside of the fellowship of other Christians, outside of the relationships God has placed you in. Paul would say it's the maturity of the body of Christ together. Maturity happens only in relationships. So when Paul talks about us as the body of Christ, this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Notice there's not a word right here in that text called like. He doesn't say now you are like the body of Christ. He says you are the body of Christ. This is not a metaphor. This is a reality he is describing. You see, Jesus Christ may have been active in ministry for just three or four years, and he was on this planet in a physical body for 30-some years. But Jesus Christ is alive and well and active on earth now through two billion members of his body, and we are his hands and feet. His ministry has not stopped. It has been multiplied. God continues to do his public ministry through you. Jesus, right before his crucifixion, said this to his disciples, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. You know, what's a disciple? Someone who does what Jesus does for the same reason Jesus did it. That's what he's saying here, that we would do greater works than he did, but the same type of works. So we make disciples because he made disciples. We proclaim the gospel because he was and proclaimed the gospel. We pray for healing as he did. We welcome outcasts as he did. We serve the needy as he did. We love as we have been loved. We reconcile people as he reconciled people. Ministry is basically being Jesus to others, period. And We are called Christians, which means little Christs in this world. So Paul says, you are the body of Christ, and Christ is the head. And as the head is intimately involved in the body, that we share the life and the spirit of the head, and there is no difference because we are all united together, 
We're not some Frankenstein creature where Jesus is just kind of stapled on to us. We are united with him so the same life that he has flows through us. The same spirit he has moves in us. Until we attain together in the body of Christ the maturity and fullness of Christ. You know, too many Christians stay immature because they don't stay together in the body of Christ. They disconnect themselves from fellowship when things get tough. And Paul talks about what that immaturity can look like when the body of Christ doesn't grow together. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by every cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So he's describing kind of the negative side of what maturity would be. And these things happen when we stay little baby Christians, when we allow everything to just kind of toss us back and forth, when we are unstable, when we are um, uh, undiscerning when we are fickle in our understandings of Christian doctrine and teaching. So how would you kind of flip that or what does Christian maturity look like? I might put it this way. You are mature in Christ when you are astute in the scriptures, that you are theologically wise and discerning about what people say and what others are talking about that you can fully articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ and apply it to various circumstances and situations. You are quick to admit when you are wrong, you are teachable and you keep learning and growing. You are focused on serving others rather than self. You have a steadiness and fundamental solidness about your foundation so that you follow through on things that you say you will do and you are obedient even when things are tough and times feel dry. That's the maturity, he says, that we need. Kind of sounds daunting, doesn't it? And I want to encourage you right now to not be like, oh my goodness, I'll never get there. Because Paul himself would say he needs to grow up into it, that he himself is still immature, and that he shouldn't just be embarrassed. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be embarrassed either that we need to grow. Paul places himself right in that category. Every church then is really filled with people who are spiritual babies and need to be growing. We hope that that's the case because we all need to be growing up. That also means, though, that if every church is filled with a lot of spiritual babies, then there's a lot of poopy diapers that need to be changed. You know, and I think this would also discourage people when church is messy and things are not easy. There's a lot that still needs to go on in any church. So how do you deal, in a sense, with the immaturity? And how do you grow up? And how do you change those poopy diapers when they happen? And that's when Paul would say, here's the one remedy. Truth and love. Speaking the truth in love. Keeping truth and love together. I'll tell you this. Love without truth, it just doesn't work well. It'll keep you immature because nobody ever wants to bring up how you might need to grow. And right now, 
Um, there's a lot of truth without love in our society. We're speaking truths, sometimes truths, but we're doing it in such hateful ways that no truth is going to actually sink in and no changes. The only way it really works for anyone to grow is to keep truth and love together. Now, here's a reality, too. In my life, there are times when it's easy to be loving for me rather than speak the truth to someone. And there's other times I like speaking the truth, but I don't want to be loving to them. It's hard to keep those two together. In fact, I've never done it well. Now, why do I like to speak loving ways and look loving? Because I want to be liked and returned. I don't want anybody mad at me. I don't want anything to get upset. I want to keep everything at peace. But that's not really for them. That's really for my comfort. So that's kind of a selfish way of just being loving. And sometimes when I want to speak truth and I don't really care about love, I'm just playing power games with them. I'm trying to be right. I'm trying to be on top of it. I'm trying to keep control of things. So truth and love need to stay together, but the reality is we all struggle with that in the church. So what's the solution There is one person who kept truth and love together perfectly and in harmony from the day he was born through entire life. That is Jesus Christ. And at his best, we were our worst towards him. And at the cross, he gave us his best and we gave him our worst. At the cross, we find truth and love perfectly reflected in what happened on that Good Friday. For the cross is where the truth about ourselves comes out in full colors, that we hated God and we hate to be controlled and we hate the truth itself and we would reject him and throw him out of this world and call him a blasphemer before we'd ever admit the truth about ourselves. And the truth is, we were so bad off that God had to send his only son into this world to die in our place. Nothing short of the death of the one and only son of God would save us or cure us or make a difference in this world. That's the truth, but tied to it so closely is the love of God, which is the greatest truth anyone can ever know. The truth, the love of God, the fact that Jesus Christ so knew the truth about each one of us and yet so loved us that he willingly opened up his arms and had them nailed to that cross, that he willingly took on that torturous death and our rejection so that we would be accepted, our curse that we would be blessed, our death that he would give us life our falsehood so that he would be the one and only truth in our lives. Our hate to give us God's love. That's the truth and that's the love together in Jesus Christ. The truth and love together. So, I mentioned at the beginning of this message that I didn't really want to be a pastor when I was growing up because, well, for two reasons. But it is ironic, isn't it? I uh, made that shift, that switch in um, college. And it wasn't because biology wasn't fun and art wasn't great. 
and those things aren't good callings. It was the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ was so important that I wanted to be able to and have the privilege of having that as my focus and not worry about you know, making a living doing something else and to be fully embedded in doing that and equipping and training and encouraging and coaching and raising up others for the sake of the ministry. But that doesn't change the fact that there's not one minister in this church. No, or two with Hunter and me being the ministers and everyone else being the receivers. No, there are dozens and dozens and dozens, hundreds of ministers from the one to the many, all because of the one Jesus Christ who has gifted us for each other. Let's pray. Lord God, this day, we are amazed at your goodness and grace in our lives. We pray that you'd make this shift in our thinking so that we see right now today, we have a ministry. We have a calling. We have a purpose. That our ministry is not just to support the pastor or the church professional, but that we all are amateurs still learning this, Lord God, and that we are all called in ministry to share your gospel in words and actions and deeds. And so we pray that you would be doing that in our lives. Um, we thank you for the ministry you've given us together. And we now lift up those who need your healing and care. We lift up Andy Blankenship, who's had her third immunotherapy treatment. And now we pray, Lord, for your healing and power in her life. We lift up uh, Cindy House's vertigo, and we pray, Lord God, that you bring your healing there. And um, we pray, Lord, uh, as Jim House had a successful consultation, and they have now set up a date for surgery that you'd be working through that. And we pray, Lord, for um, Bonnie Coolidge, who will be having a diagnostic surgery at this point in time. We pray for the alleviation of that pain. Lord God, we lift up the ministry that we have in this community. We pray, Lord, that you would make us, um, make us a community that does reach out, that you would teach us each about how we can be apostolic and sent out for the sake of your kingdom, how we can be prophetic and speak your loving word into the hearts of others, how we can be evangelists and share the good news, how we can shepherd one another, and how we can teach and learn from one another, Lord God. We need those gifts in this church raised up greater than ever. And we need your kingdom across this world, Lord, your one church throughout all places and at all times to be raised up right now, Lord God, for the sake of this world in the midst of so many situations, so many conflicts in this world, Lord, where your reconciliation needs to take place. So much uh, tension in this world where your peace needs to come. So many structures that need to be altered and changed for the sake of peace and justice, Lord God. And we need your creativity and the renewing of your spirit. Lord God, I know all these things are really summed up in the one prayer Jesus taught us. And therefore, we want Holy Spirit for you to pray through us as we pray along with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen.